And good afternoon. You're listening to Ken Hudnall. This is the Ken Hudnall Show. Coming to you from our studios right here in exciting El Paso, Texas. Gateway to the Old West and the most haunted city in the country. This is December the 12th, the 346th day of the year. Just 19 days remain until this year is over with. So if you're going to start your Christmas Club account, you need to rush down to the bank right now. Well, on this day in 1935, the Liebensborn Project was started by Heinrich Himmler to increase the German population. 1937, the Second Sino-Japanese War, USS Panay incident. The Japanese bombed and sank the U.S. gunboat USS Panay on the Yangtze River in China. 1939, in what was called the Winter War, the Battle of Tova Harvey, also known as the first major Finnish victory in the Winter War, begins. 1941, on this date, I remember December 7th was uh, Pearl Harbor. December 11th, yesterday, was the day that we declared war on Japan, and Japan, uh, Germany in turn declared war on us. But on this date in 1941, 54 Japanese A6M0 fighters raid Batangas Airfield in the Philippines. Jesus Villamore and four Filipino fighter pilots fend them off. Cesar Abasa is killed in the ensuing melee. 1941, the Holocaust. Adolf Hitler declares the imminent extermination of the Jews at a meeting in the Reich Chancellery. The uh, 1945, the People's Republic of Korea is outlawed in the South by what are the U.S. Army military government in Korea. Oh, there's a lot of history if you take the time to delve into it. You know, we've been talking about, um, in addition to the fact that uh, this was the era of Pearl Harbor, we've been talking about uh, ghosts. You know, El Paso is the most haunted city in the country. And it's also the, the gateway to the Old West. At the end of the Civil War, a lot of folks in the South who had their um, way of life destroyed, as they view it, uh, came to El Paso to get a start in the Old West. And many of them changed their names, and in those days that was easy to do. And as people died here, no one knew who they were, so they were buried under whatever name they uh, wanted to use. And that resulted in a lot of folks vanishing from the pages of history with no explanation. Well, not only is El Paso extremely haunted, but this part of the country has a lot of stories of haunted locations. Um, take Albuquerque, New Mexico, for an example. I lived there for a little bit of time. Very interesting place. On Central Avenue, there is a, an establishment called the Desert Sands Motel. Built in 1957, comprised of 67 rooms on two floors. In the 1960s, it was considered a first-class facility. 
but today it seems to have had better days. And as has happened to many formerly top-notch motels, it's now living out its days as a resting place for drifters and folks with little disposable income. But it's also the resting place for a lot of unseen residences. It's now ranked number 116 in the ranking of hotels and motels in Albuquerque. It's cheap and an easy place to stay when you're headed west on I-40. Now, a number of guests who stayed in the corner room on the first floor of the center building have reported they've had uh, some very unusual things happen to them. Several said that almost as soon as they went in the room and put their bags down on the bed, strange things began to happen. There were cold spots in some parts of the room, and unexplainable voices were heard coming from the bathroom. But when you go check, there's never anybody there. In addition to the mysterious voices, the the water in the bathroom runs by itself. The TV in the room keeps turning on and off all on its own. And if that's not bad enough, when it wasn't turning itself off, the television set was also changing channels by itself. The final straw for these guests was when the outside door kept unlocking of its own accord. I mean, you can put up with strange things if you think you're secure, but if the outside door won't stay locked, you got a problem. And, of course, in Albuquerque is also the Radisson Hotel. And, as you might expect in of a city with the age and history of Albuquerque, there are a large number of hotels and motels available to potential travelers. In addition to indoor plumbing, some of the rooms even come with live, live-in spirits. And one such hotel is the Radisson. There have been a large number of unusual happenings reported taking place inside this hotel. Some have reported that while staying on the first floor of the hotel, they've heard a peculiar scratching noise and a loud slamming of doors from the floor above, even if there's nobody renting the room up above. Others have talked about stories they've heard about yelling and screaming coming from rooms that are vacant, and sometimes women who stay in some of these rooms report being shaken from deep sleep by what seems to feel like children's hands. All the floors have been remodeled except the third floor. In fact, guests are not normally permitted on the third floor. Now, a few hardy souls who've been able to gain access to this floor reported as soon as the elevator doors open, they're hit with a gust of hot air. As they walk further along the hallway on this floor, there's an area that was originally outfitted as a bar. Top of the bar itself is in perfect condition, but the rest of it's completely destroyed. And several individuals who've had the opportunity to get into this area report that the corner of the bar was covered by what appeared to be newly broken glass. Nobody had an explanation for the broken glass, as the staff rarely goes into that area, and none of the windows are broken. Now, these stories are all true at the time I did my research, because I've wandered all over this area. In fact, I've wandered all over several states. And uh, this was, um, when I did the book Haunted Hotels, it was 2016. So things have a tendency to change. The only thing constant 
is change. Now, now another haunted hotel in Albuquerque is the Ramada Hotel. It's got a somewhat unusual past and some permanent guests who are actually not registered at the front desk. Now, according to some of the hotel staff, one of the spirits resides on the first floor of this large hotel. She's said to be a very pretty, young, broken-hearted lady who was murdered in one of the first-floor corner rooms by her lover who wanted her out of his life. She's said to be only be on the bottom floor of the hotel, dividing her time between the hotel lobby and the corner room where she was said to have been killed. When one chambermaid is reported when uh, housekeeping goes to clean the corner room where the young lady was murdered, that invariably they find uh, it in disarray. Among the things that reported to have been found in this particular room are the bed sheets taken off the bed and thrown onto the floor, television set knocked onto the floor, and curtains torn from the curtain rods. Now, this type of activity went on for so long in this particular room that finally a hotel management just closed it off and didn't even make it available for guests. However, out of curiosity, periodically, the, the staff will still go visit that room. They always find it a shambles, no matter how much effort is spent in, in uh, cleaning and straightening it up. Now, Albuquerque is not the only uh, town in uh, New Mexico that uh, has odd occurrences. Aztec, New Mexico, which is also the site of a very famous UFO encounter. Um, has a number of haunted locations. One of the best known is called Miss Gale's Inn. It's on South Main Street. Built in 1907 by George Stone, this building housed the first hotel to be located in Aztec. When you enter Miss Gale's Inn, you enter a time long forgotten of country charm and creativity. Decorated theme rooms. Located downstairs in this two-story hotel are rooms one through four, the main foyer, and Giovanni's Restaurant, where you can have an exceptional homemade lunch from 11 a.m. to 2 p.m., or Italian specialty dinner from uh, 6 to 9 p.m., by reservations only on Friday and Saturday. Now, there have been several ghosts that are said to occupy Miss Gale's Inn. One ghost is that of a lady who seemed to float down the stairs. Room number seven, located on the second floor of this historic old hotel, is occupied by a, a sort of permanent basis by a very cantankerous old man. And if you go into his, what he considers his room, he'll let you know about it. And there's a tree growing in front of the hotel that was used as a hanging tree in the early days. It's said that from time to time, bodies can still be seen swinging in the wind from the limbs of this old tree. Then from Aztec, we go to Deming, New Mexico. Been there a number of times. The Holy Cross Sanatorium is uh, located on part of what has had been known as uh, Camp Cody. The U.S. War Department in 1917 established a 2,000-acre training camp near the town of Deming, New Mexico, during World War I. The garrison of soldiers assigned to this base, which was called Camp Cody, was made up of National Guardsmen from Nebraska, Iowa, Minnesota, and the Dakotas. 
The official opening of Camp Deming was on uh, December 26, 1916. The day was marked with a flag-raising ceremony. Camp was renamed in honor of William Buffalo Bill Cody, July 20, 1917. Cody was born on February 26, 1846, and died January 10, 1917. Now, the 34th Infantry Division was called the Sunshine Division at first, but this was in conflict with the, the 40th Division that was formed at Camp Kearney, California at that same point in time. So Camp Cody's 34th Infantry Division became known as the Sandstorm Division. Base quarters were built for 36,000 soldiers. And it was reported that the gang with satanic beliefs actually sacrificed one of their own members in an attempt to call upon Satan to grant their wishes. Others say that a couple sought privacy within its walls, and as a result of a quarrel, the man was killed, his body stepped into a drain pipe. You know, sheriff patrols uh, periodically visit um, this area and pay special attention to what's known as the Holy Cross Sanatorium. And they run people off when they find them there, and occasionally they arrest them for trespassing. But no matter how thorough they try to patrol, there's always uh, evidence seen of nocturnal activity. Then we go to Santa Fe, New Mexico, the Grant Corner Inn, located in a very elegant three-story colonial-style home built in 1905 for Judge Arthur Robinson and his wife. For They'd been married for many, many years, and he wanted to give her a special home. It was then used as an, after <coughs> excuse me, the judge and, the judge and his wife passed on used as an office building in the 1950s and became a, an inn in 1982. It's located in the heart of downtown Santa Fe, which is a fascinating town if you spend time there. The inn proper contains nine rooms that are furnished with antiques. And according to the literature on this charming little hotel, it prides itself on its friendly, warm atmosphere. Now, what is seldom mentioned, of course, is that in addition to the charm and antique furnishings, it's, this old house seems to come with a few spirits who have no intention of leaving. Now, custodians, guests, and visitors have reported a number of ghostly encounters over the years. Inexplainable sounds of heavy objects falling to the floor, doors banging shut, and loud footsteps are heard throughout the building. Police have been called on a number of occasions, but never find anything. According to all reports, rooms 4 and 8 and the hallway on the second floor are the primary haunting sites. Been incidents of the sounds of heavy objects falling on the floor, footsteps slamming doors, as I said earlier. Later investigations reveal nothing has fallen. No explanations for the footsteps or the slamming doors have ever been found. Some witnesses have claimed they've seen a grayish figure in the hallway that always seems to vanish right in front of their eyes. In Adobe Angels, Ghost of Santa Fe and Taos, Antonio uh, Garces uh, interviewed uh, Art Garcia, former caretaker of this B&B, and his account was somewhat um, terrifying. He endured uh, deafening noises, a blast of freezing air that killed his uh, houseplants, the stench of rotting meat, tried to convince friends to stay with him, only to have him leave hurriedly, frightened for their lives. According to owner... Uh, Louise Stewart, the spirit that haunts her home so violently, is 
since quieted down. Extensive remodeling has been done since Stuart bought the building. She actually said we gutted it, and she thinks the unhappy spirit may have left not satisfied with the new uh, appearance. Then again, maybe she's waiting for the right guess of the torment. Um, keep in mind, routinely ghosts do not like change. You may have an old historic home that never had any issues, and you make some changes and the ghosts go nuts. Then also in Santa Fe on East San Francisco streets, the La Fonda Hotel. And when Santa Fe was founded in 1607, official records show an inn or a Fonda, as it was called, was uh, among the first businesses established there. Well, then 200 years later, in 1821, when Captain William Becknell completed the first successful trading expedition from Missouri to Santa Fe, that route, of course, became known as the Santa Fe Trail. He enjoyed the hospitality at the inn, where the Santa Fe Trail terminated at the town central plaza. Now, the current La Fonda was built in 1922 on the site of the previous inns. In 1925, it was acquired by the Atchison, Topeka, Santa Fe Railroad, which leased it to Fred Harvey, who operated it as one of his famous uh, Harvey uh, houses. For more than 40 years, from 1926 to 1968, La Fonda was one of the more successful Harvey houses, renowned chain of fine hotels. In fact, um, all the young ladies who worked for the um, Harvey houses were called the Harvey Hostesses, and some were, uh, shall we say, uh, far beyond what might be determined to be cute. They were absolutely stunning, and a lot of people came just for that. 1968, La Fonda has been locally owned and operated and has continued the same tradition of providing warm hospitality, excellent service, and modern amenities while maintaining historic integrity and architectural authenticity. And throughout its long history, La Fonda has changed and evolved many times, but it continues to be the true heart of Santa Fe for visitors and locals alike. Now, the present La Fonda dining room in this old hotel is originally in a enclosed courtyard that was situated around an old well. Over a hundred years ago, during the period of time in which a casino operated in the historic old building, a Salesman who had a streak of bad luck and lost all his company's money left the gambling tables and jumped into the old well and died. From time to time, guests in the dining room report uh, seeing a man walk to the center of the room and jump as if into the, an invisible hole and simply vanish. Yeah, this building is old. It was already built when the city of Santa Fe was founded in the early 1600s. Alan Jordan, president of About Walks and Tours in Santa Fe, says that at one point court was held in the building and public hangings of those found guilty took place in the lobby. One-stop shop, I guess you could say. Despite the hangings, if that wasn't enough, there were also plenty of other documented deaths in the La Fonda. In fact, in 1867, La Fonda was known as the Exchange Hotel Building Record Show Judge John P. Slaw was killed in the lobby by Captain uh, Reinerson, a member of the Territory legislature representing Donna Anna County. Reinerson shot him in the stomach after Slaw called him a liar and a thief. Reinerson was later acquitted. Many people believe the judge still haunts the building today. He died there in the, right off the lobby. Hotel archives also document the hanging deaths of some poor soul by a lynch mob on the hotel's, in the hotel's backyard. 
That's one thing about a lynch mob. They don't pull any punches. They want you gone, you're gone. Let's talk about the Residencia on the Paseo de Peralta in Santa Fe. You know, this uh, hotel is located at the corner of Palace Avenue and Paseo de Peralta. In a long-term, uh, it's a long-term nursing facility. It's been operated by Presbyterian Medical Services since late 1983. October 14, 2003, the facility closed its doors for the final time. That move meant the 101 residents had to find new quarters within a short period of time, and the 106 employees either had to look for new jobs or move into new quarters. So that you house this nursing home was originally the site of the original St. Vincent Hospital, the Santa Fe Community Hospital. But because it became a blood residencia, um, it actually furnished many of the same services a normal hotel would. It was just for folks in the medical um, world, so to speak. A number of former staff and not a few residents who talk about strange sounds coming from empty rooms as well as uh, ghostly dark-clad figures being glimpsed in the, in the hallways at night. Others whisper of malevolent inhuman figures sticking their heads into rooms to glare at the terrified residents. Of course, when they summon help, nurses, for example, nobody's ever found. The muffled crying of a little boy who died in room 311 when this was still the community hospital still heard by nurses. The child and his father both died of injuries suffered in an automobile accident on Interstate 25. These eerie sounds from room 311 are so frequent that the nursing home administrators try to keep that room unoccupied. Now the hauntings on the upper floors seem to be taken in stride by the nursing staff. However, almost all of them well, nothing to do with the basement of that building. Staff was almost unanimous in their belief that something evil lurked in the darkened corridors of the bottom floor. When the State Museum, which is located in the building next door, began storing Indian artifacts in part of the huge basement, some nurses absolutely refused to enter that area. And those that would speak of their experiences, they claimed they saw shadowy figures moving about the hallways and heard strange sounds such as banging and voices talking rapidly that emanate from the basement rooms. Now, as usually happens in every organization, the old nurses thought it was fun to require the newcomers to, to the staff to go through a rite of passage, so to speak. They required the newcomers to spend some time in the basement. One of the staff members would take the new employees to the basement on the elevator and, and require the rookie to cross the darkened basement to the stairway and go back up to the third floor. Sounds simple enough, unless you encounter something in the, on the way. But one evening, a new staff member, a very young, inexperienced nurse's aide, was taken to the basement and given her assignment. The one that had taken her to the basement returned to the third floor to await the rookie's arrival. Traditionally, the newcomer always arrived shortly with some truly bizarre stories of things in the dark. This time, the new staff member didn't arrive via the stairs. In fact, she didn't arrive at all. Concerned that something happened to the young girl, two nurses went to the basement to look for the nurse's aide. They searched the main part of the basement, found no sound, sign of the aide. Finally, in desperation, they began to call her name. Finally, she answered, her voice faint and very far away. With the aid of a flashlight, the two nurses finally located a new, newcomer in a small dark room far down one of the hallways crouched in the corner. 
This very scared young lady confessed that she'd become disoriented in the dark and lost her way. When she heard something moving in the darkness, she'd run and found the small room in which she was hiding. The older nurse calmed the, the young aide, and the two started for the door, and they both froze. Oozing down the wall beside the doorway of that small room was flesh, fresh blood. The nurse later said it covered most of the wall and seemed to actually be coming from the wall. Not wanting to see anything else, the two ran for the elevator where the other nurse was holding the door. Later, the nurses uh, discovered that St. Vincent had uh, once had a small incinerator, incinerator in that same room when hospital maintenance personnel had cremated amputated limbs, which might account for the blood oozing down the walls. Another location in Santa Fe, which you might look at as a version of a hotel, was the penitentiary of Santa Fe of New Mexico. The main unit of the penitentiary of New Mexico at Santa Fe was opened in 1956 to house long-term offenders. In 1980, there was a major rebellion at the New Mexico State Penitentiary, though it was said to have been a an inmate rebellion without a plan, without leadership, without goals. Destroying, just for the sake of destroying, I guess you could say. Once the uprising began, a sort of mob mentality seemed to overcome the rioting inmates. There were a few heroes, plenty of villains, and a lot of victims. When the, Santa, when the state police marched into the penitentiary in New Mexico February 3, 1980, they didn't retake the prison for rioting inmates as much as they occupied the charred shell after the riot had burned itself out. Thirty-three inmates were found dead inside, some of them horribly butchered by their fellow prisoners. The emergency room at St. Vincent Hospital in Santa Fe was overwhelmed with more than 100 inmates, some beaten, others suffering from drug overdoses. Eight of the 12 guards who had been taken hostage and were treated for injuries, though amazingly none of the guards had been killed. The black mark on New Mexico history as the nation was captivated by the harsh stories that dribbled out of Santa Fe. The riot began in the early morning hours of Saturday, February 2nd, when guards entered dormitory E2 on the south side of the prison. For some unknown reason, the door to the uh, dormitory wasn't locked in violation of prison security regulations. Now there was a hallway gate that led to the prison control room. Four guards were taken hostage during the first few minutes of the riot. In all, there were 15 guards on duty inside the prison that night, supervising more than 1,100 inmates. Now, the inmates rushed down the main corridor and broke the shatterproof glass at the control center. The guard on duty fled, leaving behind keys that could open most of the prison gates and doors. Once the inmates assumed control of the cell blocks, inside the prison became a nightmare of violence. One Associated Press reporter later described it as, in a story distributed worldwide as a merry-go-round gone crazy. A large number of fires were set as other inmates uh, ripped out plumbing fixtures, flooded, flooding parts of the prison. Other inmates got into the infirmary and began taking drugs, while still others began hunting their enemies, and you can be assured they found them. Sometime around 8 in the morning that Saturday morning, inmates began using tools from the prison to gain access to cell block 4, which housed the snitches and inmates who uh, were in protective uh, segregation. The snitches housed in that cell block all met a horrible end. One was hung from the upper tier of the cell block, another decapitated. 
Most of the 33 inmates killed were from the segregation unit. Early Saturday morning, fitful negotiations began with some of the inmate leaders. Ambulances shuttled the dead and injured to St. Vincent Hospital in Santa Fe. Smoke continued to pour out of the prison gymnasium. It became clear that neither the inmates nor the state had a single spokesman during the negotiations. This resulted in a great deal of confusion in the attempted negotiation uh, process. Eventually, though, the prison inmates made 11 basic demands. Some concerned basic prison conditions like overcrowding, inmate discipline, educational services, and improved food. They also wanted outside witnesses to the negotiations, such as federal officials and the news media. Guards had been taken hostage when the, the riots started were finally released. Some of the guards had been protected by inmates. Others were brutally beaten. One was tied to a chair. Another lay naked on a stretcher, blood pouring from a head wound, according to a, a journal reporter. The negotiations broke off about 1 a.m. Sunday in State officials insisted no concessions had been made. But the riot, fueled by drugs and hate, was literally running out of gas. Later Sunday morning, inmates began to trickle out of the prison, seeking refuge at the fence where National Guardsmen stood with their M-16s. Black inmates led the exodus from the smoldering cell blocks, staying in groups large enough to defend themselves from other inmates. And at that point, the largest riot in the Mexico prison history was over. Now, many have said that the violent emotion that violent emotion can uh, produce hauntings, and this prison riot released emotions that have been suppressed for years. Inmates went on a killing spree, unprecedented in New Mexico prison history. The most active areas of the prison are cell block three and four, the the tool room and the laundry room. Now, cell block three was a maximum security ward, which was also considered the solitary confinement cell. Some of the ghostly activity reported here includes unexplainable noises, doors that open and close by themselves, lights that turn on and off without any apparent cause. Cell block four was the area where the snitches and other prisoners held in protective custody were contained. Upon entering the cell block, there are marks on the floor where rioters used power tools to decapitate the snitches and several other inmates. Also visible are the outlines of scorch marks where other inmates were burned to death with propane cutting torches. The other inmate was hung from the upper tier of the cell block with sheets that had been tied together. Activity reported here is similar to that reported in cell block 3. 23 of the inmates that were murdered during the riot were killed in cell block 4. The laundry was the site of several murders, although they occurred long before the riot of 1980. Located in a labyrinth of corridors that lie underneath the prison. His quarters also linked the gas chamber, many mechanical rooms, and the tool room where the inmates stole the propane torches or the tools that were used during the riots. Uneasy feelings and whispers are often uh, reported down there, as well as unusual human-shaped shadows uh, have been seen. Clearly, while the human activity stopped, the, uh, the inhuman activity continues you know outside of Las Cruces there's a place called Dripping Springs and it's long been an area enveloped in mystery 
Colonel Eugene Van Patten originally built the Dripping Springs Resort in the 1870s. A native of New York State, Van Patten came to Mesilla, New Mexico, at the invitation of his uncle, John Butterfield, who operated the Butterfield Stage Line. Van Patten worked at the Picacho Stage Station and probably elsewhere after the Stage Line ceased operations in Las Cruces in 1861. During the Civil War, he joined the Confederacy and saw action in the Battle of Glorieta Pass near Santa Fe. Interestingly enough, had the South won the Battle of Glorieta Pass, um, the war would probably continue several more years. The Dripping Springs Resort was originally called Van Patten's Mountain Camp. It had approximately 16 rooms, a large dining room, and a concert hall. Very popular around the turn of the century, and a lot of famous people, including Pat Garrett and Pancho Villa, stayed there. Van Patten was married to a local uh, Pino Indian woman, and a number of Indians lived and worked at the resort. The uh, Indians hand-carried water from the spring to the rooms in uh, Olas, uh, which were attached to long wooden poles, and from time to time uh, held dances for the amusement of the guests. In the late 1800s, stage line brought guests to the hotel from Las Cruces, which was 17 miles away. The stage would deliver the guests to the front of the hotel and return to delivery. The wagons and horses for the stage line, as well as the personal livestock of the guests, were kept in this area. Of course, in the 1900s, guests began to arrive by automobile, as well as they continued to arrive by uh, horseback and in wagons. Now, the resort had its share of exciting times. When Albert Fountain, a prominent figure in the Lincoln County War, was murdered on the east side of the Oregon Mountains in 1896, his daughter was notified of the murder at the resort. Van Patten led a large posse to investigate, uh, but Fountain's body and that of his 12-year-old son Henry were never found. 1917, Van Patten went bankrupt, and Dripping Springs was sold by uh, to Dr. Nathan Boyd, who homesteaded on a parcel of land adjacent to the resort. Boyd was a physician in San Francisco who later married the daughter of a wealthy Australian engineer. He joined his in-law's business and became involved in large engineering projects all over the world. He and his wife came to Las Cruces to promote, design, and build a dam on the Rio Grande, whose uh, floods often devastated the countryside. Local farmers whose lands had been inundated by the lake behind the dam uh, would have been um, inundated by the lake that would have been uh, created behind the dam, stopped the project. Ironically, the U.S. Bureau of Reclamation, creating the state's largest man-made lake, Elephant Butte Reservoir, eventually built a dam further north. By the time Boyd had acquired Van Patten's resort, his wife had contracted tuberculosis. Deciding to remain in Las Cruces, Boyd converted Dripping Springs into a sanatorium. New structures were built in different parts of the canyon to provide housing and care for the many arriving tuberculosis patients. Now, the Boyd family eventually sold the property to another physician, Dr. Sexton, who lived in Las Cruces, who uh, continued to operate as, as a tuberculosis sanatorium. Late as 1946, the resort was still in relatively good shape, and a group of local citizens attempted to raise $4,000 to buy it for historic preservation. Unfortunately, their efforts failed, and unknown persons scavenged the resort for building materials. 
Today, the ruins of Dripping Springs Resort lie scattered along the canyon, preserving the memory of Colonel Van Patten, the doctors Boyd and Sexton, and the many famous and not so famous who visited and lived there for a period of time. You know, the, the complex sits silently, brooding over the, the deserted canyons, still mostly hidden from view behind clusters of rocky outcroppings and pockets of thick, thorny desert fauna. These buildings, which were once all part of a, the tuberculosis sanatorium, were built around 1910 by Dr. Boyd. Legend says that Dr. Boyd had a beloved wife who was suffering from the tuberculosis and that uh, he built the place up in the rugged yet beautiful mountains just for her. Now, there are other darker rumors about Boyd Sanatorium as well. Rumors of a more unknown element, I guess we should say. Some say this canyon is filled with restless spirits and that some of them happen to be the spirits of the patients who passed away up at the mountainside sanatorium. The deserted building known as the caretaker's house had a wooden porch with a breathtaking view of the valley below. It's not hard to imagine that uh, there might be spirits here. The trail leading up to this place is officially closed every day well before dark. Earlier, in fact, than all the other trails in the area. But there have been reports of campers in a nearby canyon campgrounds being terrified by strange visions and horrific nightmares featuring uh, torturous uh, treatments undergone by gaunt and ghostly patients, even though some of the campers are said they've had no prior knowledge of the nearby sanatorium's presence. There have been various paranormal investigations at this location. One group even claimed to have gotten photos of shadowy figures wondering about the ruins. In fact, it was at Boyd Sanatorium where a number of new cameras failed to work. In each case, the camera that would work fine at the Van Patten ruins, but it began to work uh, once again as soon as the would-be photographer went a little ways down the trail away from the sanatorium. It just would not function while in the vicinity of the sanatorium. And that's not an unusual occurrence. I had a brand-new top-of-the-line camera when I went to... Uh, when I was doing the research for my Tombstone book. And I was in uh, one of the buildings where there was a stage and a, a lot of boxes where folks would sit to watch the performances. And I went to take a picture of the stage, and the camera would not function at all until I got outside. And then I heard it click as if it had taken a picture. Well, I didn't take one. But when I checked uh, the pictures in the camera, there was a beautiful picture of the stage. And it looked like uh, two or three people uh, peering around uh, the scenery at the back of the stage. You never know what you're going to find when you go on a, a ghost hunt. I did them for 20 years here in El Paso. Now, a hand-hewn stone stairway heads up the mountainside to where the patient's housing used to stand. All that remains of these particular buildings are now the foundations and low stone walls that outline the shapes of where the, these buildings once stood. On this pathway can be found the remains of an old drinking fountain designed to aid those who took this way up the canyon. Water was piped uh, in from the springs nearby to a 
holding tank above the terraces where the patient's housing stood. The piping carried the water down to the residences and to the drinking fountain below. The kitchen and dining hall were located in a spacious uh, structure, perched high atop stilt-like beams along the mountainside. Now, in the early 1900s, Dr. Boyd was involved in a court case that would eventually deplete his funds, and the sanatorium was sold to Dr. T.C. Sexton, also from Las Cruces. He bought it in the 20s, intermittently run as a sanatorium and a resort for several more years. Nathan Boyd's son, Earl, bought the place back in the early 30s and moved on to the land, living in the caretaker's house. 1940, while Earl Boyd was away serving in the military, the remote structures were subjected to heavily damaging vandalism and looting by unknown parties. The place had been vacant ever since, despite changing hands uh, one more time before being acquired by the Bureau of Land Management in 1988. And in spite of federal government ownership, there are still figures that are seen moving about in the shadows as evening falls. Locals still say do not be called around the sanatorium after dark. According to stories, a number of people who were haven't been seen since. Then in Montezuma, New Mexico, we have the famous Montezuma's Castle, originally known as the Montezuma Hotel, designed by noted Chicago architects John Root and Daniel Burnham for the Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe Railroad, which had built a spur from nearby Las Vegas, New Mexico, to Montezuma in 1882. And for a decade, the resort was a major attraction, and visitors included Rutherford B. Hayes, Ulysses S. Grant, William Tecumseh Sherman, and Theodore Roosevelt before the Montezuma closed as a hotel in 1903. Now, the castle was later owned by the Baptist Church and served as the site for its Montezuma College and then by the Catholic Church, which ran a seminary for Mexican priests from 1937 to 1972. And once the Catholic Church closed the seminary, the castle was left empty and became easy prey for decorative vandalism. I don't care how remote something is, vandals are going to find it. In 1981, the Armand Hammer Foundation bought the property in order to found the United States campus of the United World College. Now, the castle remained an empty but picturesque backdrop for the campus until 1997 when it garnered national attention. First, the National Trust for Historic Preservation recognized the building as one of America's most endangered historic places. In 1998, the White House Millennium Council named it as one of America's treasures, first property west of the Mississippi to get that particular designation. 1998, United World College launched its first capital campaign. And since the castle served the world, uh, raising funds uh, for scholarship endowments, uh, program development, campus improvements, and the restoration of Montezuma's Castle was the major thrust. 2000 through 2001, the building underwent a $10.5 million renovation, transforming it into an international center for student and faculty housing. Dining facilities, offices, a campus store, and student social center. Castle also holds the Bartos Institute for the Constructive Engagement of Conflict. They teach you how to politely wage war.
While many of the building's magnificent interior and exterior details were restored, modern treasures were added, including two eight-foot glass sculptures designed specifically for the castle's enormous dining room by artist Dale Chihuly. A large number of people have reported seeing the figure of a woman in one of the towers at night. Seems to be watching for something or someone. Others have reported hearing strange sounds coming from some of the empty rooms of this massive structure. And, of course, when no one's around, there's also been the sound of voices heard. No matter how thoroughly security searches, I've never been able to find any cause of them. Then from Montezuma, New Mexico, we go to Gallup, New Mexico. The Rancho Hotel. Formerly opened December 17, 1937, the El Rancho Hotel was built by the brother of the movie magnate D.W. Griffin and drawn by the many films made in the area. Ronald Reagan, Spencer Tracy, Catherine Helper, and Kirk Douglas were among the many stars listed in the guest register. Autographed photos of the stars, Navajo rugs, and mounted trophy animal heads adorned the magnificent two-story open lobby with its circular staircase. Now, the El Rancho Hotel was built by Joe Masaglia in 1937 for R.E. Griff Griffith. Originally, Griffith came to Gallup to direct a film. Later came back to build the Arancho Hotel. He also managed the local chief theater. From, from the 1930s to the 50s, the hotel became a temporary home for many Hollywood stars. It also became a stopping point for tourists driving on old Route 66. The hotel is now protected by the National Historic Preservation Society. And it's continually cared for by Mr. Ortega, who's made it its personal hobby since its purchase. The hotel's decorated and furnished in the old Western rustic style. Constructed original brick, ash, um, tar stone, and used wooden beams with a pitched roof, um, wood shale roof. Large portico overlooks the entrance and reflects the southern plantation style. I grew up in a house similar to that. Entering through the Solid wooden doors. You view the grandeur of the lobby. The floor is brick inlaid in a basket weave pattern, and the, the light fixtures are made of stamped aluminum. Stone fireplace uh, cove is surrounded by handmade wooden staircases that uh, spiral to the second floor balcony. The balcony encircles the lobby and displays original photos of the hotel and many autographed pictures of the Hollywood stars. Now, a large number of Hollywood's most famous movies were shot in the area, such as The Bad Man, a MGM film starring Wallace Beery and Ronald Reagan in 1940. Sundown, a Wagner um, film starring Gene Tierney in 1941. Desert Song, starring uh, Dennis Morgan in 1942. Song of the Nile, starring Maria Montez and John Hall in 1944. Four Faces West and Colorado Territory, both starring Joel McRae in 1947 and 1948. Streets of Laredo, starring uh, William Holden and William Bendix in 1948. Rocky Mountain, starring uh, Errol Flynn in 1950. Big Carnival, it starred Kirk Douglas in 1950. Raton Pass, starring Dennis Morgan in 1951. Uh, New Mexico, it starred Lou Ayers in 1950. Fort Defiance, Fort Massacres. Uh, Distant Trumpet, and Hallelujah, Hallelujah Trail, which starred Burt Lancaster and Lee Rudermick in 1964. So there's a long tradition of movie filming in this area. 
And the number of ghosts as well as staff, a number of guests, as, I can't talk, as well as staff members have reported hearing disembodied footsteps and laughter on the upper floors of the lobby after hours. Objects have been reported to have been moved about throughout various locations of the hotel by unseen hands. And, of course, you've got the typical mysterious opening and closing of doors that's been reported in the writer's suite. A lot of very well-known uh, couples spent their honeymoon in that bridal suite. Then in Grants, we have uh, the Econo Lodge. Now, you would think ghosts normally haunt upscale. But the Econo Lodge, well, sometimes guests uh, guest and ghosts have budgets. The uh, Econo Lodge in Grants, New Mexico is an old or three-story hotel. Now, no one seems to be completely certain of how it happened, but this hotel's gained a certain reputation for being a very haunted place to stay. I'm told that though there are three floors to the facility, nobody's allowed on the third. And all the rooms under that level are now used just for storage. However, even though nobody's allowed to be on that floor, from the swimming pool, many people have seen people looking down at them from the third floor. Whether ghosts or real people, nobody's really sure. A number of guests reported hearing footsteps and sounds of screams and distinctive sounds of elevators going to that level. These same people have also said that uh, when they inquired, it's revealed that the elevators don't go to the third floor. It takes a key for the elevator to go past the second floor. And only the trusted members of the staff have that key. Former staff members have said that they've heard that an unknown person appears in the kitchen out of the nowhere. Whenever this person mysteriously appears in the kitchen, the entire room becomes as cold as an icebox. Other people have said that all the stories about the hotel being haunted are fake. It started out as a joke. Some have tried to confirm the incidents that have led to the hauntings, but can find no newspaper stories about the deaths. When asked, some of the local people submit that uh, the town covered up the murders in order to, uh, not to scare away the tourists. Because most of the towns in the southwest... They depend on that tur uh, those tourist dollars. According to the story told by those who uh, confirmed the hotel is haunted, there was a rather attractive young lady who worked as a hotel maid. She'd been called to bring some towels to a guest staying up on the third floor. When she arrived, though, the, he pulled her into the room, raped and murdered her. And some of the staff who claimed to have actually gotten to the third floor to investigate the story claimed that the... Uh, Yellow police barrier tape is still in place on the left wing of the third floor. There's some staff members who report that if you actually get to the room and enter it, that it's possible to still smell the blood, and they're all adamant that the room is very cold. According to the locals, third floor was closed off because other guests reported that at midnight they could hear screams of terror coming from the room where the young lady was raped and murdered and the sounds of a struggle. There are also some reports that this wasn't the only murder to take place on the third floor of the Econo Lodge in Grants. Some people say that the uh, hotel is filled with evil that tends to cause that violence. And finally, there are a number of reports that if you stay on the second floor in the room directly beneath the murder room, that uh, during the night you can hear screaming and cries for help coming from that room above. Then, in Rosiata, New Mexico, in Pindare's Village, his Pindare's Restaurant and Lodge. 
Now, Pendares is a subdivision located in Raciada, New Mexico. That's about 30 miles northwest of Las Vegas, New Mexico. Main attraction includes an 18-hole mountain golf course, fishing, hiking, and just plain old relaxation. Subdivision is roughly 980 original lots. The original lots, about 100, are on the market for resale purposes. The Rosiata Valley and surrounding uh, communities hold a fascinating history, and several buildings constructed in the 1870s can still be seen today. Now, the lodge has 18 rooms that have been freshly painted and have new carpeting. Rollaway beds for families are available. There are also additional accommodations available for in summer homes. Full-service restaurant serves dinner daily. Breakfast and lunch can be enjoyed at the clubhouse on the golf, uh, near the golf shop. Or you can have a drink in the historic uh, Moosehead Saloon. Conference center seats 80 for meetings, and it's also uh, available for banquets. The restaurant which seats 100, provides the opportunity for banquets for larger groups. Pandaria's village was actually established in the mid-1960s, and this little subdivision has grown into a unique opportunity for outdoor enthusiasts to live and or vacation. It's just two hours from Albuquerque. Perfect weekend getaway. Home to over 190 residences and a challenging 18-hole mountain golf course. There's plenty of things to do. Now, many of the employees have seen an older man in a downstairs bar at the lodge. Nobody knows his identity, but this mysterious figure will suddenly be seen standing by the bar, and then he'll just vanish. He's also been seen uh, standing outside one of the rooms in the lodge as if waiting for someone. If you approach him, he's just suddenly not there. Then in Philmont, New Mexico, the Philmont Scout Camp. The... uh, it's the oldest of the high adventure bases operated for the Boy Scouts of America. Along with the Florida High Adventure, Sea Blue, and a collection of programs in the Boundary Waters. It's one of the most renowned Boy Scouts uh, facilities. Located in the Sangre de Cristo Range of the Rocky Mountains of New Mexico. The closest town is Cimarron, New Mexico, but maybe it's better to say it's about 20 miles west northwest of Springer, New Mexico, or 35 miles west of Raton, New Mexico. Shaped somewhat like the letter I with the bottom section uh, larger than the top. It's about 12 miles across uh, east to west at uh, its widest point, about 30 miles long. No mountains to the south of Philmont or to the east, The lowest elevation is 6,500 feet at the southwest corner. Highest elevation is the peak of Baldy Mountain, 12,441 feet. Most recognizable landmark at Philmont is the Tooth of Time, which is 9,003 feet tall. Granite monolith protruding uh, 500 vertical feet from an east-west ridge. Now, Native Americans of the Hickorya Apache tribe and the Ute tribe once inhabited Philmont. At least one Native American archaeological site exists in the northeast, northern section, and various camps uh, seek to preserve Philmont's uh, Native American heritage. In the mid-19th century, the Santa Fe Trail crossed the plains just southwest of Philmont. In 1841, Carlos uh, Gilben and the Guadalupe uh, Miranda obtained a large uh, land grant from the Mexican government, including the present ranch. Of course, the grant soon fell into the hands of 
Gobin's son-in-law, Lucian Maxwell, who played an important role in developing and settling it. Maxwell sold the Lawrence to the Maxwell Land Grant and Railroad Company, which gave up and handed it on to the Dutch Development Company, which decided to parcel it out to ranchers. Well, the old Mexican homestead was preserved on the ranch as part of the Aburu camp for many years until it burned down, which leaves only a stone fireplace and a chimney. Reconstructed homestead, you can be seen less than a mile away at the new Aburu camp. History of mining uh, at Philmont dates back to the years immediately after the Civil War. Story is that an Indian befriended a Union soldier and happened to give him a shiny rock. The um, shiny material in the rock was found to be copper. According to the story, the soldier and two of his friends went up to investigate and found gold. However, they couldn't stay. Of course, they were in the military. And much as they wanted to stay in mind the gold, by the time they returned the next year, the area was overrun by miners. Scores of gold miners were... Uh, gold mines were excavated in Philmont and opened up in the early 1920s. The uh, one of the most interesting things about Philmont um, are some of the stories of ghosts, which we'll talk about tomorrow, and you won't want to miss it because Boy Scouts have in fact had contact with historical outlaws who appear and disappear. Well, until tomorrow at this time, this is Ken Hudnall for the Ken Hudnall Show saying have a truly great evening. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.